We just started with number 149, which was um, the following words were among the last advice that Master gave to the monks. And last week we talked for the first one. No one can give you the desire for God. You must cultivate that desire in yourselves. God himself couldn't give it to you. For when he created human beings, he didn't make them puppets. You must desire him yourselves. I don't no longer recall what I said last week. I make a habit of forgetting what I said. Imagine if you remembered, if I remembered everything I said. What a living nightmare that would be. <laughs> but I, uh, we were in a discussion this morning about um, thinking in terms of consciousness as different vibrations. And um, in the astral world they say, where, where this world is a heterogeneous, where people of many different vibrations exist simultaneously on the planet. Um, somebody turns out to be a terrible murderer or something and he can have lived in a neighborhood and everybody thinks he was such a nice man. You know, somebody like really awful can be right next door to very elevated people and it's just, we're all in this together and you just don't really know. And even if we're not next door to them, we share a planet with some um, people that are working out different things than we're working out. Uh, but in the astral world, you, you go into a, a homogeneous vibration. And I've, I've heard the stories told about how you, uh, you're in your vibra vibratory group and you can look down, you think of it as down, to vibrations that are grosser than the one that you're in. And people with more light go to places where there's less light and try to bring light in order to lift people up. And I've heard it said that you can look up and see that there's a higher realm, but you can't move into it because it's all vibrations. So you can't move into it until your vibration matches it. And the closest thing of thinking like that is sound vibrations. I think in the astral world it's a collection of all the astral vibrations, but if you ever try to sing in harmony or in pitch with someone, there's a point at which your voices don't match and then there's a point at which they match really beautifully because you hit the vibration exactly so. And he's talking here about that no one can give you that love for God. You have to desire it yourself. It's like everything in this world is vibration and every vibration is a particular state of consciousness. And so if you're at a state of consciousness that is vibrating with... Um, Determined, determined commitment to matter as the highest reality. People can talk to you all they want about what the experience of loving God with be, but you can't even access it. You can't even understand what they're saying. You'll, you'll hear what, what you expect to hear. I've been in a fairly complicated conversations in the last week with someone trying to work out very long-standing misunderstandings. It's, it's impossible. Swamiji always had a policy Sometimes people, when they have a misunderstanding, they sit down and they try to say, well, you said this, and then I said this, and then you said this, and I said that. And Sometimes there's a certain amount of that that's helpful, but Swami as a rule never let us do that. He just had us all agree as to what we were going to do going forward because it's uh, truly astonishing uh, what, you said, what you said and what was heard and what they said and what you heard. 
And when you start trying to put it together, it, really you think you're on different planets, what to speak of having the same conversations. It's really quite wild. Uh, Swami actually commented once that he said a lot of um, lack of communication is because people are in different vibrations. He actually was speaking about the, uh, the African Americans and, and white Americans. He said the vibration of the speech is so different that it's hard for them to understand each other. I had an interesting time once when I was on the phone. I was trying to make some arrangements with a man who spoke with a, an Indian accent. Um, I couldn't understand him until I assumed his accent. <laughs> and, and it didn't sound funny to him because that's the way he's used to speaking English and he'd never met me and he couldn't see me. But when I spoke in his accent, I understood him. Very, it was very strange, but I was really aware that I was just out of sync and I couldn't capture him, so I started vibing like him. And then all of a sudden I could feel it. And, and that's not, Master's not talking only at all about vibrations here, and I said last time more about love for God. But just that very simple fact, you have to desire it yourself. No one can give it to you. you your, your own way of being has to shift um, f- before you can feel that. That's what attunement is. And that's why on the spiritual path, Master would say attunement is everything. Because once you become attuned, it's, it's just exactly what happens when you're singing in pitch with someone. Suddenly your own voice, it, just, it becomes so much different than your own voice because all that, those vibrations are matching. And so our love for God is actually to match the vibration of divine love. That's why um, Master always tells us if you want to have joy in meditation, you have to meditate with joy. Because if you're not meditating with joy, you're not vibrating with what it is that you're trying to attract. And even though the divine joy is there, if you're not on that wavelength, you can just beseech and all you want, but there's no, there's no joy in you to match it. I had, uh, I had that very odd experience many years ago when I uh, was trying to learn to scuba dive and I became very afraid of doing it because I'd had a, a, a difficult experience right at the beginning, which sometimes happens. And I, I was very, very nervous the night before we were going to go out again. And, it, and I got over it. But I was so annoyed that I remained so nervous and I felt that Divine Mother should have comforted me and she didn't. And in the middle of the night I realized that the reason I was so nervous was because there was a certain person that I was, I was not kind to. And, and it, it, maybe I'm making this up but this is how it seemed to me. And because I wasn't kind to that person, I had created, and that person was a needy person. I'd created a universe in which uh, needs were not met. And so I had a vibration where needs were not met. And so when my needs, when I had needs, I lived in a universe where they weren't met. It was very subtle to me, but I could really feel that I wasn't bringing you know, I, was, I wanted to be rescued, but I wasn't bringing um, to the situation the consciousness that would allow me to melt. I, I don't even know if it's true, but it had a very, very big effect on me. As ye sow, so shall ye reap. You know, I think God had to arrange a very complicated set of circumstances for me to notice it. But ever thereafter, and that was quite many years ago, 
um, not that I'm able by any means to always adjust my vibration, but whenever I start emanating a vibration that is less than I would like to receive, I remember that all I'm doing is sowing the seeds of my own suffering. It's just as simple as can be. It may come back to me at a time when I can't connect the dots anymore, but I've created a universe in which this is the experience, this dissonance or judgment or anger, irate, whatever it might be. And so then that later on, what, what, why would I be surprised when it comes back to me? It's just a complete boomerang with a string that's always tied. Great incentives. Suffering is a great incentive. Okay, questions before I go on? Um, and then Master says, as point number two, be wary of developing too keen an intelligence. <clears throat> Many people use their powers of reasoning cleverly to justify their delusions. Concentrate more instead on developing heart quality. Devote as much time as you can daily to meditation, to actually experiencing God. You know, this is a... Um, uh, many years ago, I mean, Swamiji, when I first saw Swamiji in 1969, my first... Uh, uh, conscious thought was that um, he had the consciousness that I was seeking to acquire. That was just what I felt when he walked in the room. And then he spoke, and I remembered nothing of what he said, except somehow I learned that he was a disciple of Yogananda, or maybe I knew that in advance, but I remember nothing of what he said. But as soon as he finished speaking, I thought, this is the most intelligent man I have ever met. And that was like, oh, isn't that sweet? I love that. Because I have always, and everybody has uh, petty enthusiasms. <laughs> and I just, I like intelligent conversation. I like intelligent writing. I, I don't really think it's necessarily a, a virtue, it's, but it's a fact. It was the way I was raised, and it's just the way it is. So it was all, has always been, was always uh, a particular treat for me that Swamiji had such a keen mind and was so willing to express it. You know, um, many saints and sadhus can express in many different ways. And, and Swami just happened to be a highly educated, you know, very uh, cultivated, artistic person who part of the way he expressed himself was just with this great refinement that was also expressed through a very, very fine mind and very highly educated. But he had an intelligence that was so different than just being educated. I had uh, been to uh, a student at Stanford very briefly, and there were many intelligent people at Stanford who had minds that worked very quickly, that were very knowledgeable about many things. People could, were very glib in their conversation. You know, they could argue. They could. They were erudite. They knew many things about many things. Um, you know, an academic environment is uh, can be the epitome of highly evolved intelligence. Just. Uh, Many people aren't educated or well-read or well-versed or well-spoken. So when you meet people who are, it's, it's very notable. But Swami's intelligence was like an, of, an, of an entirely different type. Even the intelligence, the, the two words didn't almost, they weren't even the same words. I mean, I mean, an obvious word was that he was wise. He wasn't merely intelligent, he was wise. But he was also intelligent. 
and he could just see to the heart of situations. And often uh, in those early years when we were struggling to resolve, resolve things or figure out how to go forward, well, actually all through the years, just many times, very bright people, Ananda attracts very bright people, very bright people with very keen minds, would apply themselves to some of these situations and just come up with nothing, <laughs> just nothing that was workable and very often we'd then bring the, the situation to Swamiji and in a matter of minutes somehow he would just go right to the heart of what it was. And there's many explanations of that. One is super consciousness and just being able... The rational mind analyzes and takes things apart and sees all the different aspects of things. The superconscious mind understands how all those parts resolve in unity. And when Swami taught superconscious living later... He taught a lot about if you're oriented toward the solution and you're, you're certain that no matter how disparate the situation and the pieces look, it will resolve in harmony because everything resolves in harmony. And no matter what it is, it always resolves in harmony. So you start with, there is a harmonious answer here. It doesn't mean there's a simple and easy or nobody's going to get their feelings hurt answer. But there is going to be a unifying answer. So he always would start, just almost like looking a little above where all the threads came together, and then he would answer from that point. That was part of it. But there was a a fearlessness about Swami's intelligence that I I was extremely impressed with. And I I was very, I became aware that the, the fact that he could see things that other people couldn't see is because he didn't have any preferences about what the answers would be. Whereas I know with myself, I was, you know, I would be afraid of this alternative for this reason. What would that person say? How will this person feel? This one will be hurt. What will I do if, you know, it can't possibly be that because of this. So there would be just this whole host of conditions that I actually would realize would narrow the, the just even the spectrum. And none of it was conscious. It was all like, the whirling vrittis, you might even say set up a certain vibration, and that vibration allowed only certain options into the story. So try as I might, with as much energy as I had, I was already wearing blinders, and the blinders were all my samskars, all my, my karma that held me. And I gradually began to really appreciate that Swami was absolutely fearless. He himself described his spiritual search when he was a young man as a search for truth. Before he was looking for God, before he knew he was looking for God, he was searching for truth. And he, he, when he was a high school student, and um, I, when I was working uh, years ago on that first book I wrote about Swami, I, he directed me. I, I thought it was going to be more of a traditional biography. He directed me to talk to the remaining people who were childhood friends and so on. I, I put some of that in the, books, the book of stories of Swami Kriyananda, but I had fun talking to a couple, uh, one lady in particular and also his cousin, just about what he was like as a young man, as a high school and a college student. And, and uh, you know, they told me about the search for truth as just being his salient characteristic. Everybody else was mostly on a search for pleasure. This one woman who'd been a friend of the family all the way through, she said, with his brother Bob, you talked about, you know, popular music and who was going out with whom and, 
you know, sort of what the, what the football team was doing with Don, as he was called then, you never talked about anything like that. Just never brought it up. With him, you only talked about the meaning of life and philosophy and the search for truth. That was just all he was ever doing. Uh, right in the same house, she was talking about how different she described him as the young prince. <laughs> he, had a, he, he, he was royal. The rest of them were... He and his mother were royal, is how she put it. And the rest of them were just nice people, but different completely. So, but he always had that. I just want to know what's true. And, and he wanted to know what, what's true with a power that transcended likes, dislikes, and fears. And, and that's, you know, when you really think about that, that's a wholly different, well, I'll call it a vibration. It's a wholly different vibration. I was always a little unusual growing up because I was destined for this path and I, I came in with it. You know, n- no one comes to this path with the kind of commitment that so many of us have if we're starting out for the first time. It just doesn't happen. And clearly, because I came so young, I was just born for this. So I had a lot of these characteristics which made me, um, I didn't fit in. But I, even in my tiny little um, karma circumscribed universe, I remember, uh, especially the one year I spent at college, um, how everybody wanted, people were suffering, especially though I was living in a woman's dorm, the women were suffering for so many reasons and so deeply and desperately wanted to not suffer. But the idea of actually looking at things differently and changing was not part of the picture that they were looking. They just wanted everything to stay the same except they would feel better. And I I just remember, among the reasons why I dropped out of college so fast, it's like, you, you must be kidding, was the only thing I could think. You know, you can't, this can't be a serious suggestion that you just want the whole world to rearrange itself and you're not going to... And, and, and even, there was not even this push to know. But uh, with Swamiji, it was an accomplished fact. The, the freedom from the compulsion of karma, he was just free from the compulsion of karma. Therefore, whatever, whatever existed in the universe, he, he could look at it all without um, limitation. So he would just see solutions that, I, you know, I couldn't see because that part of the, of the spectrum um, a- agitated me on one level or another. All of this was unconscious. I only thought of this later. So what I find interesting in all of this, and this is where this, this reminds me of, you know, be wary of developing too keen an intelligence um, concentrate more instead on developing heart quality. But the delightful thing here is that if you develop heart quality, then intelligence is a natural byproduct of it. That's why they often talk about, well, Anandamoy Ma is an example, and there's other saints. Anandamoy Ma was totally illiterate, and her, her signature was an X. And there have been other sadhus and famous swamis and devotees that were totally uneducated, and then in the end, the pundits come and ask them questions. And they become the arbiters of any um, of these scriptural disputes or so on because of the quality of their heart, their consciousness is unfettered, 
And then they can even articulate it because it's just, it's just so clear. Something you see so clearly you can say. I was talking to a friend of mine who has great psychic abilities and I was trying to ask her, you know, what is it like? And uh, she, she just sort of said, you, you just see it as clearly as you see anything else. A friend of mine was speaking of her recently and um, she had an appointment and, uh, with the psychic and the psychic, there was a, a number of people around and the psychic knew that the woman she was supposed to meet was a friend of mine. So she looked through the crowd and then she walked right up to the woman and said, you must be so-and-so, my appointment. She said, I see Asha in your aura. <laughs> now, if you think about that, it, that's, I mean, even though we don't normally, but that would be quite natural. Because whoever, I mean, the, the, uh, that person and I spend a lot of time together, and of course I'm in her aura, she's in my aura. And we, we actually might even feel it with one another, but she just simply sees it. She sees a vibration she recognizes as me, and she knew that the person she was looking for was a friend of mine. So she just walked over and found her. Really interesting. And, and you would call that, well, I mean, that psychic ability, but a certain kind of intelligence. If the heart is completely... This is where I also wrote into that book of stories that what Swami said, that we think when we meditate we're trying to calm the mind, but it's not really the mind we're calming, it's the heart because it's the, the agitated likes and dislikes of the heart that cause the mind to keep spinning. And once the heart comes to peace with what is, then there's no, uh, um, there's no ripples, because one is just at peace. If you, watch, if you watch the restless mind, you realize the restless mind is flitting from one desire and one preference to another. It's, or it's, it's got a worry, or it's got a hunger, uh, or it's got a, an, a, an annoyance, or it's got a craving. But where do all those cravings begin? They begin with the likes and dislikes of the heart. You know, I'm sitting here meditating, but I wish circumstances were different. I, uh, I, when I was teaching a meditation class, beginning meditation class, which I used to do years ago here, I remember on the second class, one of the second classes, and everybody had learned Hong Sa in the first class, and and most of them had actually practiced, which is always very gratifying. And they had practiced, and they'd come in, and they actually had questions. And somebody started it, and for some reason the class was very willing to speak. And somebody started by saying, you know, as soon as I start meditating, within a few minutes I feel so angry. And someone said, as soon as I start meditating, I just begin to feel sad, and tears run down my face. Another one said, as soon as I start meditating, they just started chiming in. I feel so physically restless. Another said, as soon as I start meditating, I get so hungry. <laughs> no one mentioned lust because no one had the nerve, but I'm sure they were in the room. But what I was, uh, you know, what, I, what it gave me the opportunity to say was not that meditation creates any of that, it's that when you stop distracting yourself, you find out wh- what is agitating your heart. And whatever your whatever may be, it depends on the meditation, your dominant issue at the moment, if you stop distracting yourself, it'll just expose itself. People stop meditating because they think meditation is making me angry. No, it's just exposing it. And if you distract yourself away from it, it doesn't go away. You're just always so agitated then that you don't notice it. So for, for every reason that one can think of, if, if we, I mean, heart quality is not just, um, not just uh, devotional chanting. 
you might even say you, you need to cultivate the quality of the heart, meaning the, the fineness and the refinement of the heart. What is it that the heart is longing for? What are we devoted to? Where, where does our energy flow? Reason always follows feeling, that's how Master put it. And which is another way of saying, calm the heart and the mind will follow. So, um, I, w- I was talking to someone about this also in, in another way of putting it, which is your, your heart quality is also your essential vibration and your magnetism. So, uh, I remember when the very first saintly person I saw in my life was a uh, Swami of the Ramakrishna order from India. And I lived in Southern California at that time and I attended the Vedanta Society Temple in the Hollywood Hills. It was a distance from where I lived, so I didn't go there that often. But I remember going that Sunday. I would have been 19 or 20. And uh, there were often Indian Swamis, but he was a guest Swami. I have no idea what his name was. And I do like intelligence. And this man stood up and spoke. And he spoke... um, he had a very he was facile you know he he spoke easily and so on he had a rather thick accent and I couldn't follow it completely but but insofar as I could follow it he wasn't there wasn't a lot of content you know there, I, I was used to a more organized kind of way of speaking and he was just sharing a whole bunch of stuff and the more he talked the more I just felt this rising joy. And of course, I'd never had an experience like that before. And I can still see his face. I have no idea who he was. I never saw him again. Afterwards, he stood and shook our hands and he just looked right through us. You know, he he looked at you like this, but I don't know what he was seeing, but you could feel he wasn't seeing what I see when I look in the mirror. He was just seeing something else like that. Um, But he had so cultivated the quality of his heart. In his case... It, it didn't have an intellectuality to it. But I must say it, must, it had a profound intelligence because he was magnetizing that audience to him you know, with, with such a radiant force because it, his whole being had just become that way. And Master's telling us that if we're too keen on just getting all the facts right... Um, you won't, you won't have that heart quality and you won't have that magnetism it's not merely that you won't be as effective a speaker but you won't, you won't be attracting God in the same way because it won't be there he's not, he's not really that interested in uh, the footnotes <laughs> that's why Swamiji is, is was so distressed about the way uh, SRF published the Bhagavad Gita commentary and also the uh, commentary on the Bible of Masters because it's filled with footnotes. It's filled with, you know, erudition, like how intelligent I am to be able to put all these extra things in here. Um, That even, Swami said, it's even confusing because you read a little and then you read this other energy. And he he felt that that whole style of writing um, was just completely took away from what Master was really doing. It was intellectual rather than the intelligence that comes naturally from heart quality. Very important. Also, again, I mean, this is very impressive to me. This, this was among the last advice he gave the monks. Cultivate love of God. No one can do it for you. Don't spend too much time trying to become intelligent. Concentrate instead on developing heart quality. Master doesn't say it, but as much intelligence as you need will follow. 
because as Sri Yukteswar said, uh, saintliness is not dumbness. <laughs> Spirituality is not incapacitating. And then he says, don't sleep too much. He <laughs> gets so practical so fast. <laughs> don't sleep too much. Sleep is the unconscious way of contacting God. Sleep is counterfeit ecstasy. <laughs> friend of mine in those very early days, uh, uh, we'd all, we all had understood, we were all studying uh, this teaching together. This was before Swami. And uh, we knew there were three states of consciousness. And this man was a, a, an Olympic sleeper. <laughs> I mean, he could sleep. If he had, if he had an un, uh, unwelcome task in front of him, the man could sleep like nobody I'd ever known. So he was trying to be a graduate student at the time. <laughs> and so there was a lot to sleep about. <laughs> he, uh, but he would say proudly, three states of consciousness and I've mastered one of them. <laughs> I had a very interesting experience with it, sleep, when once I had to uh, pull an all-nighter, as they say, something to do with whatever project we were doing in the publications business at Ananda at that time. Periodically, you know, we would just have to stay up all night, or, or I don't know why, but it was just part of life at that time. It's what you do when you're that age and you're doing exciting, fun things. And I d- went through the whole night and I felt just terrific, and then the next day I felt great. And by the time I got home, it had been like 36 hours, and I was still very energetic, which was nice. But I was tired of being awake, I was tired of being conscious. I, I, I was, I be, it became so clear to me that I didn't sleep necessarily because I, my body needed it. I needed it because I'd had enough. And that I just needed a break from self-awareness. Self-awareness was exhausting. And so I put myself to sleep, which wasn't hard to do anyway, but it was very interesting. And really then you come back to realize that sleep is a form of intoxicant because it allows you to escape. He calls it counterfeit ecstasy. Because when you can go deeply enough into a superconscious state, you're freed from uh, the unbearable burden of individuality. You You just don't have to cope with the constancy of your individuality. It was very interesting to me as I gained vocabulary on the spiritual path to recognize that the impulses and intuitions, I suppose, I'd had all the time before I found the vocabulary of the spiritual path could all be explained in terms of the words I learned later. And uh, there was this um, drive in me up until the time I was, uh, uh, just before I was 19, when I found self-realization through Ramakrishna's teaching and then 22 and met Swami. Um, And it was a a drive for something I couldn't identify and a sense of suffering that had no basis. So it wasn't wasn't a suffering like, you know, like like people have who grow up in very challenging circumstances or with bad health or everything would just went fine. I had a relatively comfortable, I had a comfortable life, relatively privileged. Everybody loved me, everything went well, you know, it was just perfectly nice like people had in those years. And, uh, 
But still, I, there was this constant feeling of suffocation, almost, and, and a desperate um, need for something I couldn't identify. And when I found out about the concept of the ego and how bound we are by the ego and how limiting that is, I, I was able to, to see that was exactly what I felt. I felt so confined. And that was, the, that was the word I put on it later. I felt so confined. And it just, there was no context for anybody even to speak of confinement. How was I confined? But I was profoundly confined. I was confined because I could never get away from myself. I was trapped in this very small cage with her all the time. <laughs> and she was so tiresome. I've, I've never been very good at having short seclusions, meaning like two or three days. I always have to have, have always had to have at least a week, preferably 12 days or longer, because she hangs around too long. You know, if I just have a couple of days, she never goes away. After a couple of days, she usually at least, you know, recedes a little bit. But of course, when you can get into a sufficient state of meditation, you're at least temporarily you're not limited anymore. You're not, you've gotten out of that cage of yourself. And, and, you know, she or he or it, it's forgotten, at least to some extent, even though it has this annoying habit of coming back. But at least for that moment. But of course that happens when you sleep too. And so that's why he calls it counterfeit ecstasy. Because you escape that confinement. And of course sometimes dreams invade. It's so, I, I find it really startling to wake up a lot of times. Not always. Sometimes it, it's different, but sometimes I just wake up and... I just, no, you're just, you, you go away. You're really far away and you have, to, you have to reconstruct it. You have to look around. And my, one of my friends had, had a, has had, I don't know if he still does, a consistent experience where he wakes up so far away that he... He, he can't even identify species, is how he puts it. You know, he just doesn't even know what he is. You know, he has to start by like reconstructing you know, what he is, and then he has to rebuild it from there. His wife said, whenever, you know, every so often, he would wake up like that, and he would be looking at her with this you know, extremely unusual expression, <laughs> as he was just trying to make any sense out of anything that he was seeing. Do we go into another world at that time? I don't know. Anyway, but it's... However, even though it's tempting and rejuvenating and one of the worst kinds of tortures, not that we want to think about these things, but whenever you see the person being tortured, one of the things that is done to them is they're sleep-deprived. Now, of course, it has huge physiological effects and... (laughs) There's too much tension in my heart for me to actually explore it like very calmly or medically. I couldn't. Um, but I think the other side of it is, is just imagine you're already in hell and you're not allowed to escape it. You can't get out of it. I mean, it's just, you know, the endless inescapability and you really are in a prison cell with yourself. Quite something. Not your real self. Not your real self, no. With the little self. Whenever you get away from the little self, that's when you feel free. It's interesting. uh, There's a wonderful book that I realize a lot of people don't know about. It's called Pastor's Wife. 
and it is written by Sabina Wormbrand, who is the wife of Richard Wormbrand. Richard Wormbrand wrote the book Tortured for Christ, which is like not like what you would call a New York Times best-selling title. Someone who was writing a book told me that they sent their titles out and got, got people to vote on them and got their literary coach to advise them. I don't think Richard Wormbrand tested Tortured for Christ before he wrote the book. <laughs> but that's the name of the book. But his wife, Sabina, was also imprisoned. Uh, they were imprisoned by communists for being Christians. And it's a, you know, she was also a very great saint. In fact, in, in, uh, I, don't, I, think it, I don't know if it's in her book or his, but there was a point when the communists took over Romania, which happened after World War II, um, that the world was divided up and all the uh, powers were there and Stalin took pieces and I guess Romania suddenly found itself under communist rule, which was not a happy experience. That being Swami's birthplace, you know, he's talked about what happened to that country during that time. And then gradually the communists, being atheistic, began to try to break the church. And so they were in some kind of a meeting in which there were uh, uh, communist officials uh, denigrating, mocking. And somehow, I think all the pastors in town had been forced to come. Or So, so they're in a church, but the um, atheistic officials are, are blaspheming powerfully blaspheming and she says to her husband you know somebody uh, I think she said must wipe the shame off of the face of Jesus and he turned to her and he said if I do that you will no longer have a husband meaning uh, you know they won't let me do this I'll do it but if I do it it's over and then she said if you don't I will no longer have a husband wow I mean, what courage. So he did stand up, and that was the beginning of everything else that happened. But imagine um, having that much power within yourself to be able uh, to be so God-centered that you could just, whatever comes, is more important. And him also... You know, because he was her husband, he protected her, and if he did this, he would no longer be able to protect her. So he, he, he needed to warn her what was going to happen. Wow. Anyway, so it's very good books. How about that has to do with sleep? I'm not sure, but... <laughs> just for fun, how did I get there? Oh, being able to escape yourself and... Yeah. Oh, yeah, sleep deprivation. That's where it was. Thank you. Sometimes it's good just to see if I can... <laughs> Trace it, it's just a pure exercise, that's all, in memory and logic. One of my friends once listening to me talk, uh, he, he, would, he, would watch, he would watch me um, sail away from where I started. And he would, he would you know, kind of run a little private wager as to whether I could ever get back. <laughs> and he would, he would always sort of give a little silent cheer when he watched me roll the whole thread back up and get back. So... So, then Master says, don't joke too much. <laughs> don't joke too much. Master says, I myself, as you know, like a good laugh. But if I make up my mind to be serious, no one can make me even smile. Be happy and cheerful, above all, inwardly. Be outwardly grave, but inwardly cheerful. That's actually really interesting, isn't it? Considering how 
much Master laughed, and I'm thinking about this, about how much Swami laughed. Swami was always willing to laugh about things. I just try to think about how to say it. But he never tried to laugh. Do you know? He wasn't always trying to make jokes. He, he wasn't like, oh, you know, just thinking how he could entertain us. Or, or if things got too serious, felt the need to break it up or anything like that. It would, only, it would always just come in the natural flow. And if it was in the natural flow of things, he was always very happy, you know, to let the energy go light. But he never, um, he never used it in any way to distract. And I think that's what... Uh, you see people, I, I've been in, in situations where uh, people can't let the energy either get too serious or, you know, they, they always have to kind of keep, keep it distracted is the only word I can think of. A person is restless and they're just always needing to make it move. I think that's what Master said by being grave. I'm not, quite, I'm not entirely sure what that word would mean, but I think it would just mean, you know, sort of uh, rooted you know, deeply rooted. Swami's consciousness was always very, very deeply centered. And so when he would settle, you know, when, when there was silence, he would just always settle back into a, a very um, calm and aware place. His energy, he was never untethered. I remember meeting this woman once. She was a real estate agent or a banker, I can't remember. It was just somebody with whom I had to have uh, an interaction. It wasn't an, uh, a friend and it wasn't anybody who came in here. And I know everyone, everyone is made in the image of God. Everyone. And everyone has a spine. Except perhaps this woman. <laughs> I've never seen anyone so incapable of being centered. She was just constantly agitated. Just, it just like it was, it was just she couldn't she could never come to rest I mean naturally I did not continue to do business with her she was just impossible but what you see in Swami what you saw in Swami and I'm sure what you saw in Master too was that they were constantly at rest so even when they stepped out to be light they were always stepping from that place of rest it wasn't like they were always in, not in rest don't joke all the time and I've, I've seen on many occasions when the joke was either inappropriate or it just wasn't the time to be joking. Swami was never unkind, but he was utterly unresponsive. <laughs> I was speaking once of a, a time when, when we were teasing someone. Swami made a serious suggestion to someone, and uh, it was a group of people who were old friends, and, and there, was a, an, there was an element of that that was teasable. So we took it and started teasing the man, but it was... I, do they call it teasing on the point or teasing on the square or something like that where you're teasing someone but it's, there's a little bit of a knife in it you're teasing someone about something that isn't a fine quality of theirs and it could hurt them and I remember the, the room the table we were at dinner started moving with this laughter I looked over at Swami and he was grave just totally like that and he, he didn't stop us but he waited till it was completely over. Then he continued as if no one had spoken. <laughs> it was very, very instructive. He just, he just wasn't... Uh, we just got carried away and agitated and, and weren't thinking about it. 
But Swami was always aware of um, that it was a little hurtful to this man, and he didn't really—he really didn't want it to happen. At the same, by the same token, I remember once I was—we were—I was with Swami in Hawaii when he was working on editing the first part of the Path. That would be 1976 in the summer, and we were staying in someone's con- condominium, and that we weren't at the beach, but we were at the beach, and we were a little back from it. But the whole complex was built on the beach, and we were standing on the balcony, the lanai, as you call them there, but it was a balcony. We were standing on the balcony and we're looking down at the swimming pool and the ocean just beyond and the ocean waves were coming in. And the swimming pool had, for some reason, had this white foam on it that sometimes swimming pools get. And Swami just casually said, what's the white foam? And I said, what's that foam? And I said, white caps, like that. (laughs) Just a silly joking answer which I'm inclined to give. And we both laughed. But it, it, I stopped for a second and I said to him, you know, what is humor? Like, where does humor come from? Because it, I, there was no forethought. I didn't think to give a silly answer. And it was funnier in the moment than it sounds now, but for some reason. But he, and he, he answered me. He said, to a certain extent, humor is a spiritual quality. Because you have to have enough detachment to just see things other than they appear. You know, it's just a swimming pool with some kind of chemical foam on it, but all of a sudden to me it was white caps, which was ludicrous in the context. But just the mind instantly just moving out of what's commonly there and just seeing something else. And Swami always really enjoyed that kind of humor. He never liked anything that was unkind or vulgar or anything like that. But when you could just sort of see something and then just turn it just a little bit, I was repeating uh, something that I'd read in the files recently. When Swami had, before he had his heart um, operation in 1994, he used to have a lot of atrial, atrial fibrillation, where the basic rhythm of the heart just goes gablooey. And he had, you know, really major gablooey. It just was always doing all kinds of things. And uh, Dr. Peter said that most of the time when a doctor treats a patient with that, one of the ways they gauge what's going on is that it's very agitating to the individual because that steady heartbeat is part of what sort of keeps our equal, equilibrium and when that heartbeat is so erratic it makes the person's mind and spirit jump around. He said Swami was completely impervious no matter what his heart was doing and sometimes when Peter would be listening to his heart. Swami would say, did you hear that one? <laughs> like this. But we just, and, so, and Peter actually said, when he was treating Swami for that particular quality, he said it was more like being a veterinarian than a doctor <laughs> because there was nothing to read on the patient. It was just, he had to just do completely physiologically because there was no normal. And so Swami, at one point, he was having some really unusual rhythm and he, he just commented. He said, oh, I think Dr. Peter might be very interested in that rhythm. And then he said, but I really don't think any composer, either classical or modern, could do anything with it. <laughs> that, just, that was him. It was, there it was, but that was, it, he was, he could just move into that world. And, so, and you never knew when he was going to move into that world. It, it could happen when, when uh, I'll give this last one, when we were when we were in the middle of the Bertolucci lawsuit and Swami had his absolute worst day. I put this in my book. It was just the worst day. 
and most of us were, weren't prevented from going in the courtroom. It was part of the way the whole thing ran. And the lawyers were just torturing him. It was awful. And there was about 30 of us in the hall, and we were so anxious. And he came out, and uh, he, he used to like James Bond movies, and there were lots of classic lines in James Bond. And so he comes out, and we're just gathered around him. And we're, you know, just everybody's in pieces. Are you all right, sir? Did you get all right? And he stood up like this, and he said, I am, I am stirred, but not shaken. He said like that, which is how James Bond would order his martinis. <laughs> we all recognize the line from the movie, stirred, but not shaken. And all of us, we just burst out laughing. And here we are in the courtroom in the opposite, you know, Attorneys are there, and all these people are trying so hard to destroy him. This anxious mob crowds up to him, and the next thing is we're just dissolved in hysterical laughter. Perfect. Yes. So the the phrase that comes to mind to me in relation to humor is it's the nature of joy that to want to share itself. Exactly. And when you're in situations when there's really not enough joy going around that's a good way to do it um, for, you know, because more of us are able to say something humorous than naturally project pure spiritual joy. That's <laughs> um, exactly and right. And we're often more able to receive it that way too. Whereas if he was in a different situation where there was a higher level of joy going on, then that would be distracting. And so that's where the real dividing line is, is what type of joy is or isn't happening here, and is this joking type higher or lower than that? Absolutely perfect, Tondo. That's an exact explanation. And when we were in a, lo a lot of times, all through those lawsuit years and days, which were just horrid, we laughed so often, just, you know, just like that. Everything was so terrible, but then you just made a slight turn, and there wasn't enough joy going on, so you just say something, yes, exactly. I can't make it better. Yes, Tricia? Plus, laughter is the bubble coming from the sea of mirth. A tiny bubble of laughter, I have become the sea of mirth. Say it again, say it with me again and again. A tiny bubble of laughter, I have become the sea of mirth itself. The whole poem ends there. Incredible. The whole poem ends there. So, let's take a break. Short break. <laughs> Laughter was always such a big part. I was saying that Tandava articulated what I was reaching for. I, could, I couldn't quite find it. In my book, maybe you all don't remember, but when uh, Jyotish and Devi decided to get married, it was a big community. Everybody was really happy about it because Devi knew she was supposed to marry Jyotish before Jyotish knew he was supposed to marry Devi. So there was a certain amount of, of waiting around for it to all kind of come together. <laughs> and not everybody knew that, but almost everybody knew that. So when Jyotish finally decided he was interested in Devi, Swami had them get married in like two weeks or something like that. It was just like, okay, now this is what we're going to do. So it was a big deal. But uh, uh, there, there was also the simultaneous thing that was always going on, which is whether you took uh, cream in your coffee or whether you took your coffee black. This was just in Swami's house. Another one of these just endless, just sort of playtimes that would go on. And there was a, a lot of competition as to who, you know, what was spiritually superior, what was a sign of a higher nature. You know, on Hiranyaloka, did they have milk in their coffee? Did they have it plain? It was just, it never stopped. Swami and I 
always took milk. Jyotish always took his coffee black. And, uh, I, and tea the same way. I remember once there was no milk in the house. And uh, so we all had to have our tea black. And so I, Swami and I, for some reason, it was a very good cup of tea. And we're both drinking our tea black against, you know, great protest because there was no milk in the house. And it was really good. And it was, it was some kind of like intuitive between us, you know. We kind of looked at each other and the implications of it were very serious. <laughs> and then he, he, he said some, something that was like, you know, don't ever tell. <laughs> and I whispered back, even if they torture me, you know. It was just like we would keep the secret. So it was very intense. So, uh, and Jyotish was on the black side and we were always on the milk side. So, so Jyotish is there. Davy wasn't in the room. I was there, probably Seva. There weren't a lot of people. And Swami starts in like this. Jyotish, he's looking at the ground, you know, because he would sometimes do that when he just, he doesn't know what to say. So he's looking at the ground. He says, Jyotish, you know, I've really been thinking about you and Davy getting married. And he looks up at him so seriously. He says, I don't really see how it's going to work. You know, and you can see Jyotish, he's just like, after all, you know, he's just going pale. And he said, because you're just never going to be able to say, you're the cream in my coffee. <laughs> and then he sang the whole song. <laughs> I mean, we were hysterical. <laughs> after Jyotish's heart started again, you know. <laughs> And then it was, the song was so terrific, we had to sing the whole thing all over again. <laughs> I think you're the cream in my coffee or the milk in my tea. I think that's what it says. Oh, my God. <laughs> With me once, oh, I started, I, I would always, I was so impulsive in my speaking, and I would say things I didn't mean to say. My mouth was always ahead of my mind. So I started stopping myself, and I would say, oh, never mind, like that. I'd start to say something, and I would say, oh, never mind, and... Uh, apparently Swami didn't like this but I didn't realize that and I came to his house once and I I was I think we were just we're standing in the kitchen so maybe we're about to leave or maybe we just come in and Swami said I was meditating today you know which was not unusual he said and I received a message directly from Babaji and he said message was for you Asha and it was like <laughs> like this he said Oh, never mind. <laughs> I said, it's that annoying. <laughs> he said, yes. <laughs> I said, okay, okay. <laughs> you know, he wasn't, uh, he was not formal. And he, he didn't have this great respect for things. He was always there. Anyway, but yes, Exactly. And once I said to him, uh, Swami, you're making fun of me. Very serious, he said. No, actually, he said, I'm not making fun of you. I'm taking advantage of the fun which is already present. He said. <laughs> <laughs> so we miss him. We miss him a lot. Now let's go on to... Don't waste the perception of God's presence acquired in meditation by useless chatting. Idle words are like bullets that riddle the milk pail of peace. 
in devoting time unnecessarily to conversation and exuberant laughter, you'll find you have nothing left inside. Fill the pail of your consciousness with the milk of meditative peace, then keep it filled. Joking is false happiness. Sleep is false ecstasy. Joking is false happiness. Too much laughter riddles the mind and lets the peace in the bucket flow out, wasting it. It's the same conversation. That we were, it's the same conversation about joking. You know, Swami was very, very talkative in a certain sense. It wasn't like Matt. He says that um, he tells the story of uh, that when guests would come, Master would hold forth and he would, you know, share so much and. Then the guest would say to like Diamata and others, it must be so wonderful to be with him all the time, hearing him like this. And Swamiji said much of the time he didn't speak at all when he was with them. He was, just, he was very silent. And, uh, but Master Swamiji talks about how much he and Master conversed. It's actually, I just was thinking about that, how Master answered his questions and reminisced with him. And you don't actually, let's, let's collectively think about this, you don't actually hear Swami talking a lot about times when he sat in silence with Master the way he talked about like that. I mean, I can't, it's not recorded, let's put it that way. It's not that it didn't happen, but he, he, he didn't mention it as often. Probably there wasn't that much to say. It was probably too inward to talk about. So I'm not going to draw any conclusions. I'll just leave that. Um, but uh, Swamiji held forth a great deal of the time. Toward the end of his life, he didn't. It was one of the extremely notable ways in which his personality shifted. He began to lose his hearing, but it was, um, it was, it wasn't really, it was just that he just stopped holding forth. He stopped uh, uh, expressing himself through words as much as he did through most of the time that we knew him. And I I read, uh, when I was reading the Gospel of Sri Ramakrishna once, it was really interesting because Ramakrishna also often talked a lot. And they talked about, seemingly, they talked about this one place where he went to someone's house and he talked without stopping for like five or six hours. And you know he wasn't just chattering. He was just, he, had a lot, he, had, he was teaching. He had all these things that he really needed to put across. <clears throat> and I, I, sort of, I often felt with Swamiji that, because he, he, he wasn't idle chatter. Sometimes the conversations were extremely interesting. You know, very far-ranging and it wasn't like he would just sit and say in Patanjali Sutra number so-and-so or in Gita verse number so-and-so. <clears throat> he would just talk about just wide-ranging subjects. I mean, my mind blanks at the moment, but just anything. The state of religion in the world. We didn't like talk politics so much, but we would just talk about everything that was happening that was um, relevant to our understanding. So it was never trivial it just was never a trivial conversation, even if the subject matter was light. And there would be, that was, it was interesting because he always, it was always so elevated. And sometimes people would come in and they would try to chatter a little bit. And, and whenever, the, whenever someone would try to chatter, it, just, it was such a different vibration than his conversation. Because his conversation was always starting and going somewhere. It was never it was never random in circles like this, um, and so it it wasn't just about being in silence. It was also about the 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 power and purpose of your words. 
Swami was also extremely exact in what he said. Not that he labored. It wasn't like he labored hard, although he was the editor never sleeps. So whenever he would slip and say something, he would always correct it. Or whenever you slipped and said something, he would correct it. Something was, uh, what was it? Well, I forget right now, but it, was, it had the word ludicrous. But you know, you just, when you reverse words, sometimes you say the opposite of what you mean. He would always fix it. Um, because the editor never sleeps. But you're always going somewhere. You always started with some interesting point, you always ended up at some interesting point. You never just... And then the wallpaper had this kind of a design, and then the cups were so pretty, and then after that, you know, we ate mangoes. Not the kind of mangoes we had in the other town, but the mangoes that we had over here. You remember those mangoes? Were you there when we had those mangoes? You remember those mangoes. You know how people do. And it just goes, and goes, and goes, and you started nowhere, and you end up in the same place. Just, I, and I'm, I never, Swami was once in a restaurant and uh, he, he heard an interesting and intelligent conversation at the next table. And he was kind of leaning over, <laughs> eavesdropping. And then he turned and he said, it's so rare to hear intelligent conversation. <laughs> he said, excuse me for listening in. <laughs> because most people just chatter. And so that's the difference. You know, silence is also... Um, uh, of enormous value and it doesn't hurt us just to be quiet but there's also conversation that takes you somewhere which is quite different and that's, that's a little bit like the joking if you, can't, if you can improve the silence it's a good idea and he was, he, Swami was always teaching us and, but what was interesting if we were in an atmosphere or an environment where, where there was no way for him to help anybody <laughs> because they weren't interested. And it didn't mean that he always um, had spiritual subjects. There's a story in my book that Jayadev tells about being at the home of the parents of some people who live at a C- in Assisi. And they were very educated, refined family, but the parents were not spiritually inclined. But they were very interesting people. And Swamiji grew up in that atmosphere and he sat at the table and they had very intelligent conversation about interesting subjects. But none of it was spiritual. And uh, uh, Jayadev sitting there was lamenting, inwardly lamenting that the time was being wasted. And then he uh, heard Swami sort of humming a little chant to himself just sitting there. You know, just almost just so that only Jayadev could hear it. Meaning, whatever's going on, the same thing is going on. But Swami could help them. He could help the, the parents by sharing his vibration in a way they could receive. He could help the parents by giving them confidence in what their children was doing, were doing. And he could help the parents by just giving interesting perspectives on interesting subjects that were of importance to them. But if he was in an atmosphere where the conversation was too trivial, or for some reason there was a resistance um, to what he might have, might have to contribute spiritually, so I mean, we would just quite happily become the dullest dinner guest. And th- there were different times I'd see, I see it happen where somebody would invite him over or there would just sort of be a big, um, oh, you've got to meet so-and-so like this. And then Swami would just be a complete dud because there was just no way for him to give what he had to give. And if he couldn't give what he had to give, he was just perfectly content to... You know, he, he didn't have to prove anything and, and nothing was restless. 
And so with ourselves in our conversation and joking, um, part of the question is, can I just be silent and be just fine? And if you can be silent and be just fine, then you can feel what you're supposed to say. But because there's also, sometimes people get too quiet in the sense of it's a, um, it's a lower energy. Sometimes silence is a, is a restrained energy and sometimes it's just a lower energy. And you know, with Swamiji, you had to be awake. He, he would let you be silent, but he wouldn't let you go dull. And if he sensed you going dull, he would always do something to make sure that you weren't dull in one way or another to, to wake you up. So you have to, you have to think about it what your energy is. And it's all right. I mean, it's all right to be a quiet person or a person who doesn't speak in crowds, but you have to make sure that you're present and not falling into a counterfeit ecstasy. (laughs) All right. Number six here. Wine, sex, and money. These are the three great delusions. Don't be trapped by them, Master advising the monastics. Some of you are weak, I know, but don't be discouraged. Meditate regularly, and you will find a joy inside that is real. You will then have something you can compare to sense pleasures. That comparison will automatically make you want to forsake your sorrow-producing bad habits. The best way to overcome temptation is to have something more fulfilling to compare it with. That's a, it, it's a very s- simple answer, and he's partly saying, and you know, there's uh, renunciation has those two sides. One side is the necessity to discipline, and there's just really no, there's just no way around it. You, you just simply cannot make spiritual progress by constantly just doing whatever you feel like doing. There's just a point at which. It has to be self-discipline because our, our natural impulses are not necessarily helpful ones. At the same time, if, it, if it's only... I mean, that's what... Suppression is denying yourself something that you really want and you really can't think of a good reason why you shouldn't have it except that you're not supposed to. <laughs> um, transcending or even restraint is recognizing that even though it appears attractive to me, I really do understand that it's, it's not what I want. It's not like I just can't have it. It's like on another part of myself I really don't want it. And even though it's tempting at times and you know wine, sex, money, that's it's all there. You just I was uh, walking by the uh, at the Baylands shoreline and uh, walking by the lake, the little lake that's there and if you ever go out there on a Sunday, it's actually, it's really, it's really interesting to go there on the weekends because there's many, many families out there, often multi-generational families, uh, picnicking and playing out there. And most of the multi-generational families are not Amer- uh, born in this country. They're immigrant families, Indians or Spanish-speaking mostly. And, I mean, there's a lot of other families here, but most of the people who use Sunday afternoon to have a family gathering outside like that and I was thinking about it. it. It's partly an economic thing, but it's also a cultural thing. Have fun without spending money. 
So you just bring everybody, you bring your own food and you just go to the park and you're out in a, a happy place and you toss the ball around and you splash in the water and you chase the geese and, and the grandparents watch the kids and you know, everything like that. And you're not spending any money. You're just finding joy without having to do that. But on our culture, the, the, the money side of our culture, and a lot of people raised in America are just more engaged that way. People, because we have so much and we're habituated to having so much, and especially lately, lately meaning, you know, the last decades, we've just, we've just lost the, we, we've lost the capacity to entertain ourselves. We don't know how. So if you go do something, you always do something that costs money. <laughs> you know, you go, even you, you go out for coffee, you go to a restaurant, you go to a movie, you go to a show, you do something. And to just take the whole family somewhere where it's free, as a matter of course, because why would we spend money? So we get this really strong association in our mind that, that all the pleasures that we have require that we spend something on it. And, and it, it, it was interesting in the early years of Ananda uh, Village when we all had very little money. It was, it was, a, it was a nice one-tier economy for a long time. Now it's become a multi-tiered economy, which is a lot more subtle to, to navigate. When everybody is poor, nobody feels poor. Because there's no point of comparison. It's just nobody has anything, so here we are. But if half the people have more, then the people who have less are aware of a reality. So we weren't poor, we were just broke. <laughs> I don't know how else to say it. But it was just the idea of spending money was just out of the question. You just simply couldn't do it. Oh, I know what I was going to say. But it was very interesting because... In, in the barrenness of the situation, you know, you really got to understand what money meant to you. And many people um, needed it more than others. And I, I began to appreciate one of the reasons that I was quite content with having very little money. I know, I, and just to be fair to this, I always knew there was a difference because my parents were not wealthy, but they were, they were comfortably well off. And they were always behind me. I always knew. You know, it was different for people who had no, nothing and nobody behind them. Um, not that I, I didn't have a trust fund, but I always knew that I would never actually be impoverished. But they, they weren't supporting me. I was completely on my own. But also, I was so confident about where I was. I was just so confident about being at Ananda that I was exactly where I needed to be that I didn't need the freedom to run away from it. So having no money meant that you have no freedom. You have no car. You have no you know, bus ticket. You just have no options. So it, 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 people, we, we worked with money a little differently with different people because some people just had to have more money because they needed uh, 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 the freedom. They needed to feel that they weren't trapped so that they could relax enough to decide if they wanted to stay. Because the feeling of being trapped was so unsettling that they had to, that part had to be settled before they could decide. And I realized that I was fine because I, I didn't need that back door. I, there was no place else I was going to go. It just I knew exactly where I was and I wasn't going to leave and I never did. And so money ends up meaning all kinds of things to us. Um, just you can use words like security and power and all those things are true but it's 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 very interesting for oneself to get into 
a more clear relationship on a vibrational level. I, I've always, uh, I, I've never, I never ever balanced a checkbook in my life and now that I have enough money to need a checkbook, you don't balance your checkbooks anymore. <laughs> but I never had any practical relationship, you know, keeping accounts or anything like that. Just never. I never paid a bill until recently. Just never. It was the way my life unfolded. But I've, I've realized over time that I have a very, I have a very um, comfortable relationship with money. And, you know, it's just, it's, it's because it, it's so much about what it means to you. And if you, if you can just get at ease with it, that's, it, it, Swami also had a very comfortable relationship with money. He had to work very, very, very hard. And he had to think about it a lot. And it, he said it was so annoying in the early days of Ananda, especially, when there were just a lot of people who weren't going to stay, just moving through Ananda. But as he said, you, to start a community, you've got to have somebody in it. So you, you just you couldn't be you couldn't be too strict or nobody would come in and a lot of people who came in odd got better <laughs> and Swamiji knew that they would get better but some who came in odd left odd <laughs> but there was this big anti-materialism thing in the early years you know that the way to be spiritual was to repudiate all concern for material things and so as he Swami was paying all the bills. And he was traveling from San Francisco to Sacramento and just working hard all the time to pay all the bills so that people could lounge, you know, in the fields and then go down to the river in the afternoons and then come back and talk about how materialistic Kriyananda was because he was always worried about money so that he could pay the bills so they could prove that God would provide for them. (laughs) And it was a catch-22 he simply couldn't get out of. He just had to do it. But it, it, he said it rankled a little bit. But he, 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 it was hard for him to have to think about it. But he just began to understand his energy. And he, he, was, never, he was never afraid of it in any way. It never tempted him. He, he never saw it as anything other than its energy and it's a tool. And he, he used to teach us about money as a flow. Uh, I, I got $50 a month from him. I worked for him during those years. I got $50 a month. Most of all my community fees were waived because that was sort of how they supported him was I was his secretary. He gave me $50 and I didn't pay anything else because otherwise you had to have a little more money than that. And he would open his wallet and just hand me the money so he knew exactly how much money I had. And, and on my birthday, my parents would send me $100. And uh, there, was a, there was another... A very intuitive person in the community who seemed to always know when I needed money. And he would just very sort of like, you know, don't thank me, don't look at me, hand me money, and then I would... So I got a little more here and there. Um, but then he would take us to Carmel, which has never been an inexpensive place. And we'd go out to dinner, and dinner would cost $25. Oh! You know, we'd, and we'd stay in hotel rooms. I have no idea how we did it. And he would just push us, you know. And it would, once uh, Jyotish figured out how much money we spent per hour. <laughs> I mean, it was just vast sums of money for us. But I don't know, there was always money there. And you could tell he was just, he was just trying to get us to understand, you know, neither to be attached nor afraid. And my, my philosophy was very simple. 
if it would involve Swami, I would do it. And I did that to the end of my life. And by the end of my life, it was that, you know, he's in India, I'm going to fly to India, and I'll stay there. He's in Europe, I'm going to fly to Europe. And by the grace of God, I, I had a little money in the bank that I got from my father that was just there, my Kriyananda travel fund, which I was a little afraid it was going to end before he did. <laughs> I wanted him to last a long time, but I didn't, but it, it, it worked out. Um, but it was just like, if it's, if it's, if it involves, if, if it's, if it involves something of spiritual benefit, that's what the money is for. And just, and that was just my philosophy all the way through. And he, we got to test it real regularly. And it just was always there, all the time. And so you, you got into the right relationship. I lament the fact that such an opportunity for training is not really in our hands anymore. Because that kind of the, the the absolute simplicity of that living required us that we be completely outside of social regulation, and now that government is regulating our lives more than that, even in all our ashrams, we just can't go down to that base level. If uh, the economy collapses, and we're all living in the greenhouse at the farm, we may actually have the marvelous experience of of having that all happen again. Not that I'm. Um, pushing for it, but it's a really, really good. It's a really good experience because then you just you get to find out really who you are and what what you're really made of. And it's a good experiment to have at all times because nobody can say that this isn't a reality to us. It's one of the big ones. You have to always think about it. Well, that's enough for tonight. So all we did tonight was we just continued on number one forty nine.